Uh, anyway, I'm Phil, this is Diane, and uh, you know, speakers are supposed to get up and say, it's so good to be with you, but really, it is so good to be with you. <laughs> because for me, like, I'm back in my hood, as they say. I was born in Santa Clara, went to Santa Clara High School, San Jose State, any San Jose Staters here? Yeah. Oh, like, I won't even tell you what year I graduated. Neither would I tell you how old I was when the Golden State Warriors won the first championship. But I was definitely not minus, all right? Anyway, met my beautiful wife, and she still is beautiful. In, uh, she was when I met her, too, uh, in Las Gatas. And I got permission from her father to marry her right here in Campbell, California. Uh, you know where the Prune Yard is? There's a restaurant in there called El Burroughs. Ever been there? I, I didn't get married there. That would be really tacky. But I got permission from her dad to marry her there. So it's a very special place in my heart. I was so nervous I couldn't eat. It was a lunch thing. And he's like really giving me a bad time. Gosh, this food is really good. How come you aren't eating? I go, because I'm terrified of you. You could be a CIA agent, you know, and I'm trying to get permission to marry your wife. Anyway, so uh, we are here today by Ryan's gracious invitation. I love your pastor. Do you love Ryan and Jenny? All right. Amazing. You, you better love them well because I'm telling you right now, I would love to steal them and plant a church with them in Portland, right. which we're not going to do, but... He loves you too, but man, just let him know how much you appreciate him. I love these guys. I just met Jenny last night, but Ryan was up about a year ago. We hung out together, and I've been wanting to come down ever since. So we were invited to teach this morning as part of this series, and, um, and we're going to do that on raising passionate Jesus followers in just a second. Just uh, one of the reasons we're here is because God's given us uh, a calling, our own church elders. We planted a church 11 years ago with my son, John Mark, uh, who was 23 at the time, and now he's 34. We started 11 years ago, and because we did it together, we ended up with this multi-generational church, and after a number of years, we had like 1,000 people under 30 years old, and then we, but we had you know 1,000 people over 30 years old, and so we had this multi-generational church, but we love young couples, we love college age, and they're in our house all the time, so I see a bunch of young people here, and I'm really glad you're here, and uh, we are going to talk about raising children, so I just wanted to say we, by God's grace, have four kids. Uh, they're all grown. The youngest is 23. The oldest is 34. Uh, our 23-year-old son, Matt, just got married about six, seven months ago. And by God's grace, they're all walking with the Lord, and they married spouses who are walking with the Lord, and now we have five grandkids. And we have been married, I know we don't look that old, but 36 years, coming on 37, and we're still in love, yeah. and we, we're having a blast right now, aren't we? Yeah, we're, this is a fun stage of life. Yeah. No kids to spank, just a dog to hang out with, yeah, all right? That's right. So and in Portland, if you have a dog, you know, it's the greatest missional tool ever. Just sit on a corner with your dog, and you get into all kinds of conversations. Because Portland is a city with more dogs than people. Anyway, so uh, if you are not ma- how many of you are single, not even married? Raise your hand. Okay, cool. Okay. How many of you yeah. are married, no kids yet? Okay, okay, one of you, three of you, four of you. No, five, six, I see. Okay, how many of you are married with young kids? All right. A few of you. Well, if you, if you aren't even married yet, or you don't have kids yet, and you're thinking, hey, they're going to talk about raising children. What does this apply to me? I always tell people the best time to learn about marriage is before you get married, uh-huh. so you can enter it and make way less mess-ups. Yeah. And the best time to learn about raising godly kids is before you ever have them. Yeah. So I really, we grew up in the Lord in a church that had all kinds of great teaching. And I remember taking all kinds of notes and it really impacted my life and helped me. So uh, even if this isn't a topic that you're in right now, I still encourage you to get out a note sheet and write some stuff down. So anyway, we feel right at home. We're back in our hood, so to speak. I mean, the worship leader's wearing a Golden State Warriors t-shirt. Come on, that's my team. I don't know what you're doing at five o'clock, but I am watching the game, God willing. All right, you want to say hello before we Well, hello. I actually uh, moved, lived all over the place growing up, but twice lived in this area, uh, in kindergarten and first grade and second grade, went to Farnham Elementary, which people say is oh, still knows standing. Farnham. Okay. She knows Farnham. Uh, you do? No. Okay. You've heard of it's it. It's still there. We're going to actually go look for it after no. church and see if it's exactly... It seemed huge when I was a little girl, but I bet it's really small. And I uh, lived on Longfellow Avenue, which I guess now backs right up to the big freeway. So this is really, does feel like coming home. I love the Northwest. We've been there for 23 years. You know, we have the pine trees and forests. We live in kind of a forested area, and it just feels like camping, you know, all the time. Um, but when I come back here, you have these eucalyptus trees all over. And there's just something about the smell of a morning in San Jose and Las Gatas and Campbell that is just, just brings back all these memories. So we're just having a blast here. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it feels like camping in the it mud. All right, so it rains a lot in Portland. He doesn't like the rain. There's this beautiful mountain called Mount Hood, and the way yeah. you predict the, rain, the, the weather in Portland is you get up in the morning and you look for Mount Hood, and um, <laughs> if you can see it, it's, it's uh, not raining. And you know, if you, I know what is it? No, if you if you can't see it, it's raining. I'm not going to help. And you if you can time. see it, it's going to rain. There you go. All right, I got that right. It All rains right. in Portland. Yes, a it lot. Does. But you can afford to buy a house. All right, that's our introductory remarks. Here we go. As we continue in this series, the art of family. This is message number two. Uh, we want to talk to you about the spiritual aspect, if I can use that word. Raising kids who are not just good kids but godly kids who grow up to become passionate Jesus followers. Why? Because Jesus, uh, he didn't just ask us to pray a prayer sometime and call ourselves a Christian. In fact, he didn't even talk about you know, being a, quote, Christian. He talked about the kingdom of God, and he talked about following him. He said, if any man or woman wants to follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. And so he said in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world, speaking of himself, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so when you raise kids, you want them to grow up following Jesus so they never have to walk in darkness. You don't want your kids to grow up and wander through life like I did. I mean, I played in this rock music band for nine years back before the whole DJ thing was live bands. I played, I think, at this all the high schools around here. I was playing pagan music. Here I am preaching Jesus. That's really cool. God has changed my life. But, you know, I was was saved out of this darkness, wandering around. I believed in God. I had no clue who Jesus was. And, And you don't want to raise children like that. You want them to come to know the Lord and never walk in darkness, but follow mm-hmm. him because he's the light of the world. And this isn't something that just happens because you take your kids to church. Not very long ago, a good friend of mine, a woman that I raised my kids with when my kids were really young, and we have that just connection as only moms can. Some of those are the friendships that last your whole life. And we lived in different cities now, and she knew that we were working on and preparing this material to do a conference for parents on the spiritual aspect of raising their kids. And she drove up to see me, and you know how you're with a friend and you know she's trying to say something, but she just can't break through and just say it. So finally, she just kind of burst it out and she said Diane none of my kids are walking with the Lord and just as the most grief-stricken look on her face she said they're good people we have good relationships but they really have no seeming interest whatsoever to follow after Jesus and here's a question that kept this mom awake at night we were good parents and they were we took them to church what went wrong Coming to church is fantastic. You need to gather with the family of God. And once you have kids, you need to bring them to church. But bringing them to church is not enough. Raising kids who love and walk with Jesus is only going to happen when you, as a mom or dad, make it your top priority when you become intentional about it. And people are intentional about a lot of things, the career they choose, the person they marry. Most of us have our whole life mapped out on our iPhone. Between (laughs) notes and our iCal and all of that, we are intentional about the way we spend our time. Yet when it comes to raising kids, many parents, most parents, we, when we started off as parents, don't really have a plan. Maybe a few ideas, maybe a few things that you know you don't want to do, mistakes you saw your parents make, that you want to swing the pendulum maybe over to the other side. But most of us do not start off with a really well thought through mission and plan that they're determined to implement. Somebody said this, everybody ends up somewhere, but only a few get there on purpose. And the ones who get there on purpose are the ones that know where they're headed, know what they need to do to get there, and then they become intentional about getting about the task. Uh, Neither Phil nor I were raised in Jesus-centered homes. We didn't grow up hearing the gospel. We didn't grow up. Phil went to church a little bit. I went to church maybe a few times when I was growing up. We came from good homes, healthy two-parent homes, but neither Phil's parents nor mine would have said that they were following Jesus when they were raising us. Phil was in college when he gave his life to the Lord, and I was in high school when I heard the gospel for the very first time. A couple years after that, my parents followed. Because of that, when our first child, a son, was born, and we held him in our arms, and we looked at him, and we realized we have no idea 
what we're doing. Nobody had gone before us or showed us or taught us or trained us. And, and that scared us to death. We looked around, therefore, at the leaders in our church. We were on staff at this really great church. And we looked around at the leaders thinking, okay, so they're going to be able to show us what to do, what a Christian family looks like. And we were absolutely stunned to find out that, to realize that many of their kids were indifferent toward God or outright rebellious against him. How could that be? That was just seemed like a... Because as soon as both of us had heard the gospel, as soon as we heard the good news, it was like a no-brainer. Of course, this is what we want. So we were shocked that kids could actually be raised in a Christian home and have no, not have that interest. The truth began to dawn on us that Christian parents do not automatically spawn Christian kids. <laughs> and frankly, that scared us to death. Not long after John Mark was born, we moved from California to Portland so that Phil could go to seminary. He'd gone to, graduated from San Jose State, felt like he needed to have some Bible training, so he went to seminary there. And while we were there, we were poor students um, with you know, one car, no money, no friends, no family, and really probably one of the best years of our lives. So <laughs> fun time of our lives. We had and a while, dog. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, we did have a dog. Yeah. Um, while we were there, we wandered into a, a used Christian bookstore that was up there in Portland, and I just happened to pick up a book that would honestly change the trajectory of our lives. Now, it had kind of a strange and unfortunate title, so when I was laying in bed reading it at night, he, he was a little nervous about this book and kept asking it. The title of the book was Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the book was not about me, but yeah. it was weird having your wife laying next to you reading Marriage to That's a Difficult right. Man. I said, what is it saying now? <laughs> uh, it's actually a story, a biography of a man named Jonathan Edwards, who was famous and is known for, in 1734, launching what people came to call the Great Awakening. Really, the awakening of America to understand the truth of Jesus and God and his reaching out to us. And I kept interrupting Phil's studies to tell him about this amazing family because from that clan came generation after generation after generation of godly, high-achieving, world-impacting leaders. It was astounding, so astounding that studies have been done on this family to see what is it about these generation, generations of the Edwards family. There were university presidents and doctors and leaders and innovators in business, a vice president of the United States, and over 300 pastors and missionaries sent around the world, all from Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. And this biography was, was told from the standpoint, not of how he did his life, but from the standpoint of his wife Mary and their 11 children and their perceptions about their dad. And a hope began to form in my heart as I was reading it. I would dare say now, and I wouldn't have said then, a vision for what God was calling us to. And I began to ask, could God do something like that through our family? Might he use us in some small way to change the world, the course of history, to impact the church with a capital C, it was a daring idea for a couple of fresh kids with no background in faith to think that maybe God could use us. And so right then and there in that little tiny yucky rental house right <laughs> by the campus with just this little infant in our arms, we dedicated ourselves to spend the rest of our lives pouring every bit of wisdom and teaching and drive and creativity and effort into making disciples of our own children. We asked God to use us, and we're just in our 20s, to become the matriarch and the patriarch of generations of comers who would follow hard after Jesus. And this is a calling. It's been our calling, our quest. We believe that more than anything else we might do, especially since we're still just trying to figure out one end of the Bible from the other, more than anything else that we might do, it was going to be through our children that we would have by far the greatest impact on the kingdom. 
And it's that vision that guided pretty much every decision we made as we were raising our children. Uh, should we have cable TV in the house? What about Santa Claus? Should we, at Christmas time, should that be part of the story or might the myth shadow the real story? Everything came under the scrutiny of this one question. Will this help or hurt when it comes to raising kids who love God and who are passionate Jesus followers? So we said no to a lot of things. We said yes to a lot of things because like those of you who are parents of young kids today, we wanted to pass on our faith to the next generation beginning with our own kids. Now, there are three passages of scriptures I want to take brief looks at this morning. So if you've got your Bible, please get it out if you haven't already. And if you're looking at scripture on your iPhone, great. Look at scripture. Don't text. Okay. Um, (laughs) Judges chapter 2 is where I want to read a few verses from right now in the Old Testament. uh, Right off the book of Joshua. Judges chapter 2. Then I want to take a brief look at Deuteronomy 6. And then in the New Testament at Ephesians 6. So Judges 2, Deuteronomy 6. Ephesians 6. Judges 2 records a frightening story. God's people have entered the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua now has died. And and he's uh, led led God's people in conquering the promised land. And here's what the Bible says in Joshua chapter 2. It says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. So Joshua was such a good leader that even after he died, the men that he had trained carried on leading God's people in the ways of the Lord. But then it says, all the days of Joshua, they, they fought. it says, all those who had seen the great work of the Lord, which he had done. That whole generation then died. They were gathered to their fathers, the Bible says, which means that they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. This is where it gets scary. So here's Joshua. He leads the people of God into the promised land. He dies. The elders keep leading the people. Now they all die off, and there's another generation that's coming up. And it says, they did not know the Lord. And, and that's, that's, that's a very frightening statement, a very important one. It's not about just believing intellectually there is a God. It's do you know him personally? You know, Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. But look what happens. It says, they didn't know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And here's what happens. Three things. In verse 11, then the sons of Israel, number one, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And number three, they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. There are many gods in Silicon Valley that are false gods. God, little g, one of them is the god of materialism and money. is huge. This is the wealthiest valley in the world. I grew up here when it, before it was Silicon Valley. It was called the Santa Clara Valley. Then they paved it over, and you can't buy a house anymore. But anyway, it's <laughs> the god of money is huge, and it's so easy to get sucked up into it mm-hmm. and even begin to worship it. And so here, they made this mistake. This was exactly what we didn't want to see happen with mm-hmm. our kids, because what we've seen over and over is this, now that we're a little bit older. First generation experiences God. Mm-hmm. We got saved... Back in the 70s is what's now called the Jesus Movement. It was a move of God. It was massive on the West Coast. College students coming to Christ, you know, we believed in God but had no clue who Jesus was. And when we met him, our lives were radically transformed. And we realized this isn't just going to church. This isn't just some intellectual belief in God. This is like a life change. It's like death to self. I'm following you, Jesus, now, the greatest adventure ever. So the first generation experiences God. But then when you have children, if you don't pass that on to your kids, the second generation knows God, but they don't experience him. By that, I mean maybe you you bring them to church, they go to church, they know about God, but they never have that radical, life-changing, transformational experience. And if that doesn't happen and then they have kids, the third generation then doesn't know God or experience him. And you see how quickly, if your faith is not passed on, it can die. An evangelist that I work with who I respect highly named Luis Palau said, God has no grandchildren, only children. Each person must make their own decision. But once you've come to Jesus and had a child, you love that little boy, you love that little girl, and your top priority is that your kids will not only know about God, but actually experience him. You long for them to not just profess a faith, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but actually possess a real faith. The Apostle John said this in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And he's talking about the family of God there. But like we have four kids. I'm telling you, there's no greater mm-hmm. joy than to have fellowship with your own kids who are walking with the Lord. If, if you said to me, Phil, hey, you can have either uh, $4 million or four kids walking with the Lord, which would you like? 
I don't even have to pray about that. Give me the four kids walking with the Lord. Now, if you want to give me the four million too, I'll take it. <laughs> Maybe I could buy a starter home. And anyway, uh, but in Silicon Valley. But no, there's no greater joy, the Apostle John says, and as a dad, there's no greater joy than to see your son or daughter walk with the Lord. Your greatest fear is that they'll walk away from the Lord. There's no higher calling if you're a mom or a dad. No greater privilege, no more important task than passing your faith on to, the, to your own kids. You know, for, for you girls who are here and you're not married yet, women, but we're all girls as long as, you know, I'm 55, almost 56 years old. I'm still a girl. So for <laughs> you girls who are here and you're not married yet, could I just say this one, insert this one extra word? Think about that when, when you look at the guy that you're dating. Is he the kind of man that is going to partner with you in, in doing exactly what we're talking about, raising a son or a daughter who is going to be a Jonathan Edwards, world-changing, um, generation-seeking um, and changing person? Because if he's not, then you might want to just say after the service today, thank you very much. It's been really good knowing you, but I, <laughs> sorry guys, excuse me for that. But just honestly, people can do it alone. Women do do it alone. But my goodness, when you're raising sons and daughters and they see that their dad is the real deal and he loves God with passion, with his whole heart and makes decisions based upon that, the likelihood of your kids walking in that same way is huge. So, okay, so I wasn't supposed to say that, so I'm back on tackle. What I'm supposed to say is, before we get started, we need to tell you the truth about us, that we are not the ideal parents. Um, we are painfully ordinary people. We're not naturally good and kind and patient and wise. We are at times lazy, prideful, stubborn. That would be a really good description of myself. And selfish and strong-willed yeah, might that, that describes describe me. to you. Yes. By so, the way, I'm glad you said what you said. That was good. A word. Okay. Don't feel bad about that. Keep so going, though. Before we dared teach this, we sat down with our kids, and we asked them, adults now, what do we do right? What do we do wrong? Speak freely. This is a time to be honest with us, because we were going into this kind of the idea of teaching this with some real fear and trepidation. It's like you're kind of exposed. And um, we asked their forgiveness, and we repented of too much anger, too little encouragement, and, and every other lazy and misguided, foolish thing that we did. And remember, you can do everything right, at least theoretically. And your children, they still have to make their own choice about whether they're going to follow Jesus or not. The great heartbreak of a parent is that you actually have to let them make that choice. As Ruth Bell Grahams put it so well, she said, God has trouble with his kids, too. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, it was the leaders of our church that asked us to start teaching in this because we had so many college students who then got married and then started having kids. And they said, man, a bunch of them have come from homes where they don't have a clue how to raise sons and daughters who yeah. love the Lord. And so we've been learning as we go. Yeah. There are no guarantees when you raise children, yeah. but we really believe that there's great hope and practical help in the Bible mm -hmm. for every mom and dad. And if you're intentional in the raising of your children, if you know where you're headed, what you need to do to get there, and if you don't let go too soon, a lot of even good parents let go of their kids when they turn 18, and that's kind of when you're going to college trying to figure out what am I going to do. They still need counsel and guidance, and we talk about that when we teach on family. If you don't let go too soon, by the time your kids are even teenagers, we, we had so much fun with our kids, yet there's a healthy pulling away and, and, and all of that thing. You know, there's always the teenager thing, you know. You heard that joke, hire a teenager while they still know everything, right? So it's like there's, there's still that healthy... Thing where they're pulling away from you, but we, we had so much fun with mm -hmm. those years. Our house was mm -hmm. filled with people, and our kids were reading their Bibles and walking with the Lord. You will have established obedience. There'll be respect in the home, and you'll be beginning to make more minor corrections. Now, mm -hmm. when it comes to raising godly kids, the place to begin is where God begins. So I want to read a couple verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6, because this is where you begin. When God commands us to do something, he gives us all that we need, and we have the Holy Spirit, the power of God. 
God wants your children to walk with him more than even the moms and dads do. So you're really partnering with what he's doing in their hearts. He's not left you alone. Jesus said, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. But the place to begin is where God begins. Any moms and dads who are here, jot down Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6. These are like go-to passages for raising children. Deuteronomy 6, we read what the Israelites called the Great Shema. And in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's basically all of you. Mm -hmm. When you worship, like we sang a moment ago, you worship with passion because you're expressing your love for God. Mm -hmm. And it's not just when you sing, it's in your walk with him. Mm -hmm. And these words which I'm commanding you, God says Mm -hmm. here, shall be on your heart. So God Mm -hmm. says, it needs to be in your heart, in your very being, that you'll love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says to parents, turn around in verse 7, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So he, he commands the parents to love him with passion, and then he turns right around and says, mm-hmm. now you teach your kids how to do the same mm-hmm. thing. He doesn't say, bring him to church and let Ryan teach him what it looks like. to Ryan's supposed to reinforce what parents are already doing in the home. He mm-hmm. says, moms and dads, you teach your kids. Loving God with passion, with your whole being, is something that first has to happen here in your own heart. It's not something somebody else can impose on you. But after that, second, it gets modeled in your home and in your life. Your kids watch you. They see how you respond to trouble. They see your integrity or lack of integrity. And they're, they're watching, is Jesus really who he says he is by your life? And then thirdly, and it's so important, and so a big part you don't want to miss, is intentionally taught to your children. All three of those are essential components to all be present if you want to see kids who actually do follow after Jesus. Someone once said, the problem with parenting is that it's so daily, (laughs) to which every mom of young children says, amen, right? It's 24-7. It's constant. Raising children is a daily thing. It's when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That just pretty much covers the whole span of your children 24-7. Yeah, it's not just a Sunday thing. You know, I was talking to our children's pastor at our church in Portland. By the way, if you come to Portland, please come visit us. But I was talking to him a few months ago. A couple had visited our church for the first time. They had one child, a five-year-old little girl. And so they dropped her off at the kids' uh, kids' classes. And then they came into church, and they absolutely loved our church. They go, this is where we want to go. And so they're really hoping that their daughter had a you know, good time in, in the kids' classes. So they're driving home, and they said, hey, sweetie, you know, mom and dad love the church. Did, did you like did you like?" Uh, your class? And she said, she was a really outgoing girl. She goes, no, I never want to go back there again. <laughs> and they were like, oh, no. They go, well, why? And she said, because of what they did to Jesus. <laughs> and they said, what? Well, they found out the lesson had been on the crucifixion. So she comes in as a five-year-old, doesn't know anything, and they're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. All she saw was, that was mean. And so I don't ever want to go back to that place again. Well, so what did they do? All week long, when you walk by the way, when you rise up, when you sit down, at a five-year-old level, they talk to her about the Lord and about this death and why Jesus had to die and everything. Totally changed her perspective. She came back the next Sunday. Our children's pastor told me this, walked in, and this, she's very commanding. Like She goes, I am back, and I have decided to follow Jesus. She announced the whole class. But that was a mom and dad doing Deuteronomy chapter 6. Not, well, let's just bring her back next week and hopefully something will happen. No, no, they, they taught her themselves. And so it's really that simple. Now, when Jesus was asked, fast forward hundreds of years later, when they tried to trap him one day, they said, Jesus, of all the 600 plus commandments, which one's the most important? They go, we got him now. He didn't bat an eye. You, You can't argue with Jesus. He's God. He quoted the great Shema. He said, this is the, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then he added this, and he said, a second is like it or linked to it. And he quoted Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments depend or hang the whole law and the prophets, Mm -hmm. loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. Which means that there are really only two things that we need to instill in our, 
in our kids above all else. We sometimes make everything so complicated as if, as if following Jesus is simply a moral code that we guide our life by. But really, Jesus didn't say that. He said two things, we, and that is loving God with passion. You're all in, every part of you, and loving people on purpose. That's it. Now, nobody said this was going to be easy. Parenting is hard work. Somebody said this, raising kids is part joy and part guerrilla warfare. (laughs) But God tells you just how to do it. That's what I love about the Lord. Whenever he commands us not to do something, he turns right and tells us what to do instead. And whenever he commands us to do a certain thing, like raise kids who love the Lord, he tells us how. So Deuteronomy 6 is the place to begin. But if you've got your Bible, turn to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 6. And God tells parents just exactly how to raise their kids in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, there's all kinds of wisdom all over the Bible. I tell parents you should live in the book of Proverbs because there's so much wisdom there, both for marriage and for parenting. But in Ephesians 6, let me just read it to you, beginning verse 1, God gives a command to children, and then he gives a command to fathers. First to children, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And all the parents here said, amen. We love that part. Hey, Mm -hmm. obey me, honor me, and it'll be good for you too. The kid goes, yeah, right, you know. But it's God's command, but parents, we say amen to that. God commands children to obey their parents, but if you're a mom or a dad, it's your job to train them and teach them to obey, and you need to begin real early when they're young. Because state the obvious, before you can teach your children the ways of the Lord, you need to create in them or ask God to create in them using you a heart that is teachable. And that starts with you. Otherwise, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Just as God is after your heart, so you're after the heart of your son or daughter. And we knew coming here that this church is made up of a lot of of young people, your children are young, if you have kids at all. So we wanted to take just maybe a little segment from the long conference that we do. The conference that we do covers birth all the way through when you send them off on your own. But because most of you either have young children or, or that will be the first part that you enter, we just wanted to take a few minutes and talk about that. I especially wanted to talk to the moms about that. Because in these, in this young age, in this from birth to about age five, what you're trying to create in your child more than anything else is a heart of obedience. Heart that is, has the ability to obey. And it's not so that... It's not because um, we're training them to obey us because we're egomaniacs or, or because we're going to have a dictator rule home. It's not so that we can show off our children like exemplary trophies. Our kids made sure that they embarrassed us right from the beginning <laughs> so it couldn't be, everybody couldn't look at us and say, wow, those Coomer kids, they're just so well behaved. I mean, we could tell you stories about how that was not true in their lives. It's the reason you want to teach your children to absolutely obey you is that so that they will grow up with the inherent reflexive ability to obey God rather than than their own impulses. That is why we work so hard in those early years while you have this window of time where they are pliable and teachable. It will cost you to train your child in obedience. It will take focus and work and determination. It will take diligence. It will take being there all the time as much as you possibly can. But be encouraged, this doesn't last forever. This is a stage of a child's life that is critical to who they will become, but it goes by just like that. But the Bible does teach that there are disciplinary windows of effectiveness in raising children. It's Proverbs 19.1 in the New Living puts it this way, discipline your children while there is hope. If you don't, you will ruin their lives. There's a period of time where where they're pliable. There's hope to be able to help them. This earliest time in the the home, it's kind of like boot camp. Those of you who watch, I mean, the closest I've come to the Army is watching the Army on TV. (laughs) But it's like boot camp. It's intense. It's it's hard. It's focused. And they will fall back on the training later 
the training that you give during this time, they will fall back on later when you have no control over the choices that they will be making. Yeah, this season, if you're a young mom here especially, it's, it, it doesn't last forever. It seems like seems it's lasting like it forever because you're forever. exhausted all the time, but, yeah. and it's hard work, but, you know, keep it up. You know, this morning when I first got here, I was talking to Ryan, and his boys were out throwing a ball against the truck, you know, being boys, and, and he said, hey, guys, come on over here, and they just came right over. You know, he wanted to introduce them to me. They didn't care about me, but they, like, stood there. They obeyed their father. Mm-hmm. You know, he, yep. they're, you know... Ryan and Jenny, they want to raise God. They're doing a great job with their kids. And then yeah. they, they endured the torture of meeting this guy that they'd never seen before. And then he let him go. Okay, go back to your ball. Yeah! You know? <laughs> they went back to what they really wanted to do. But it wasn't like he didn't go have to chase them down, go run after them. And, you know, they, they obeyed their father. And so uh, that heart of obedience that your pastor and his wife are training in those kids is going to carry on through their entire life. Someday when they have a job and they're working with somebody and the boss says, I need you to go do this, they're going to do, do it. Because they will have learned this in the home. Okay, uh, we could talk more about that. Anyway, we didn't have this all figured out when we were raising our kids, like Diane said. We, so well, we, we did two things. Number one, we looked around in our church for other people who were ahead of us, who had a family that we admired. And we said, hey, can we take you out to dinner? Can we take you out to coffee? And we paid for it because Proverbs says, buy truth and don't sell it. So we said, okay, we did it. And uh, one, I remember one gal, we used to live over by Bradham High School, and Diane started running with an older gal and uh, started to get to know her, and she asked this gal to speak into her life. And that's a good thing to do if you're a parent. Ask people that you trust. Give them an open door, because most people aren't going to barge in. And so we had a little boy who was, you know, going through the, the you know, he was probably one year old maybe. And so one day she said, what, what do you think about Jumark? What's going on here? And she said, well, since you asked, the issue with that boy is control. And, the, and he's 34 now, and the issue with him is still control. <laughs> you know where he got it? From me, because my issue is control. And I heard somebody say once, it's a painful thing to see your faults walking around on little legs. <laughs> you know? He's like, where did he learn to say that? And your wife says, you say that. You know? Where did he learn to do that? He's just copying you. You know, a, a parent is a child's guidebook. And so we asked people to speak into our life, and we went after them, and we, we asked for wisdom. And the second thing is this, we, we simply went to the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are loaded with all kinds of wisdom. And we said, Lord, show us what to do. And God does tell parents exactly what to do. The last passage we want to look at today is Ephesians chapter 6. You can turn over there in the New Testament. Uh, we're already there, and we looked at what God said to children, so stay there. And in verse 4, he tells parents what to do, specifically fathers. And I love what you said to the young gals here, because you want to marry a man that you can be on mission through life with. Mm -hmm. He's commanded to lead you spiritually, to lay down his life for you. And if you love the Lord and want to follow him, and your husband's not interested, you're going to have a rough life when it comes Mm -hmm. to trying to raise a son or daughter but if you have a husband who loves God and wants to raise a son or daughter just like you do, then you're going to have a fun time pulling together. Mm-hmm. And so God tells parents, specifically dads, here what to do. And there's two parts to this command. One is negative, one is positive. One is what you're not to do. The other one is what you are to do. First, the negative. He says, fathers, verse 4, Ephesians 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The NIV uses the word exasperate. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Uh So what does it mean when God says through the Apostle Paul here, fathers, don't provoke or exasperate your children? And uh, there's a definition. I think we have it on a slide. It's an ongoing pattern or treatment that gradually builds up a deep-seated resentment that finally boils over in your Mm -hmm. son or daughter. And we want to talk about this just for a sec. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21 puts it this way. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged and lo- or lose heart. The Amplified Bible says don't be hard on them or harass them lest they become discouraged and feel inferior and frustrated. Do not break their spirit. You get the idea. Those, those verses kind of give us an idea. And the word fathers here means just that, a male parent. And it's true that the father might be most likely the one that would provoke their kids to anger, but moms are capable of the very same thing. When we teach our parenting conference, we talk about five ways parents often blow it here without even when wanting to at all. We want to give you just two of them this morning. One way that parents provoke their kids is with their words. And some of you grew up, and uh, if I could sit down, if we could sit down and have a cup of coffee with you and you told us your story, your dad or your mom just kind of berated you, 
Words like, you did that again? What is wrong with you? Can't believe you're part of this family. What, what's ever going to become of you? And just these kind of words that kind of beat you down and beat you down. You, you finally get to the point where you feel like, I can't please my dad. Nothing I do is good enough. I, I, he says he loves me, but I just I can't please him. I can't please my mom. She's never happy with me. And, and you begin to just deflate or lose heart. And God commands fathers not to do that. And when you do it as a dad, you immediately see this negative result. I was working on this very teaching. I was in my office that we moved to a different house. At this house, my office was upstairs in this house we were in. And I was studying the Bible on Ephesians chapter 6 and the truth of what God says. And my youngest son, who was 21 at the time, living in our basement, godly kid, going to Bible school, fighting for sexual purity in his life, Love the Lord, good son, but he, one thing, you know, nobody's perfect, right? My wife is like super neat, like she's the kind of person when you're leaving to go to the airport, she vacuums herself out of the house, you know? I have to live with this. Anyway, two of our kids got that gift, and two of them didn't. Matthew didn't. So he was living in our basement, it was very messy, and she'd been telling him to clean it up, clean it up. Yeah, I'll, I will, Mom, I will, Mom, but he wasn't. Finally, she came to me and said, you need to tell him he can't go anywhere until he cleans up the basement. Before so, the mold grows too high on the, yeah, right. on the carpet. So, so know, I'm upstairs was, studying, and I hear, I hear Matthew say, Mom and Dad, I'm leaving, see you later. I go, wait, 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 did you clean your... And he goes, no, no, I'm going to do it later. And I, like, lost it. I said, Matthew, how many times do we have to tell you, you know, you should, your mom's... Done? And I just let him have it while I was studying the Bible. And it was silent for a second, and the silence caught me. And then I heard my son say, Dad, I just feel like I'm never good enough. I can never please you. And man, I just got up from my desk. I went right to the top of the stairs, and I said, Matthew, I am so sorry. And I asked his forgiveness. And when you blow it as a parent, by the way, even when you've got a five-year-old, ask their forgiveness. They're like, what? But it's the most powerful thing you can do because you're showing them that you've come under the authority of God, that you're not perfect. And when you blow it, you ask God to forgive you. And when you hurt your own kids, you ask them to forgive you. And it, it'll, it'll be an amazing thing in their lives. So anyway, by God's grace, I asked his forgiveness. It didn't mean that he didn't have to clean his room. But the point was, I watched this six foot two godly kid just kind of deflate. And for those of you that might speak, a lot like I do, or by that I mean you're talkative or whatever. Here's two verses I want to share with you. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, There's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. And that's what I did that day. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. I didn't bring healing that day. I was the one that, it was like taking a sword and, and all the air going out of a balloon. And Proverbs 18, 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it, will eat its fruit. And so one of the ways, especially dads, but moms too, can damage your kids is by provoking them with the way you speak to them. You need to speak words of life, building them up, and, and need to stick with that and work at it. Another way. But it's not just with words. Another way that parents can provoke and often do provoke their kids to anger is by comparing them. You know, they're supposed to be different. This world that we live in, our culture, kind of makes an ideal of almost like one type of person. This is the ideal man or woman, the successful man or woman. But God doesn't do that. Each of our four children is unique, completely different people. They have different callings on their life, different giftings. They go at a different pace. And Ephesians 2.10, which is one of my very favorite verses in the Bible talks about us having different God-assigned tasks for us to do. God has assigned tasks to each of my four kids different than the task he's assigned to me, and a purpose and a calling. If my kids don't do this assigned task by God, then they're not going to happen in the kingdom of God. Think about that. Before you try and fit your kids into a too tight mold that doesn't fit them very well, think about who God may have created them to be different than this culture's ideal standard or different than you were when you were a kid. Um, each of your children is placed in your home under your care by God on purpose. He hasn't made an accident by the way he's wired them up. And he likes the way he made them. Do you understand he really likes the way he made your children? 
I grew up in a family of driving, high-achieving, multitasking, challenging kind of people. And I am not. (laughs) I'm slow. I'm contemplative. I think and think and think slow. Uh, While my family were all rushing down the ski hill, I could be found someplace curled up with a good book, reading and dreaming and my head in the clouds. It was, has taken me, therefore, pretty much my whole adult life. My family came to know, my parents came to know the Lord in their 40s. I was about 17 when they really started walking with God. But as you can imagine, they had all this junk from their lives that they were having to sort through. So it's taken me pretty much all my adult life to actually come to terms with the fact, with the idea that God likes me just as I am. He likes the pace that I go at. He's not saying, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, Diane. He likes the way he wired me, that he has actually made me for a purpose on purpose. Can I just tell you, parents, what the gift it would be to your child if you're discovering who they are from the very get-go? If you're on a mission to uncover this child, this gift that God has given you, and direct them and believe in them and tell that you, them that you believe them, especially if they're not cut in the mold of your culture. Like here's Silicon Valley. Every city has its own standard, right? Portland, I fit much better in Portland. Portlanders kind of pride themselves in driving slow. They're very polite. Sure, cut in front of me as soon as not here, not in, and not in LA. It's just like you take your life into your hands. <laughs> yeah, the other the other night we pulled out that old classic movie from the '80s, *Chariots of Fire*. Did you ever see that movie? You haven't. Anyway, there's oh, a guy. Oh, you got to see it. It's, it's a true really story. It, it was a classic when you weren't born yet. Anyway. Um, <laughs> There's this runner, he was a believer, and he won in the Olympics back in the day, but, uh, and he, he's, he was actually a missionary, but he also was an Olympic athlete. And he, in this line, in the, the, the famous line in the movie, he says to his sister, God made me fast for a purpose, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I said, God made you slow oh, for, for a purpose. purpose. <laughs> and when you sit and think and write, I need like a poster on my wall. Anyway, so if you want to frame your child into a man or woman of God, don't provoke them. That's the first thing. And when you blow it, apologize and ask their forgiveness. Second thing, God says what to do. That's a negative. Do not provoke your children. Look at the rest of verse 4, and we'll move on. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me break that down, those four, four phrases or words. Bring them up. In Greek, that is translated nourish in Ephesians chapter 5, where a husband is told to nourish and cherish his wife. Um, God commands me to cherish her. That's the tender affection she longs for, but also to nourish her, which means to provide for her in every way. And we also tell parents, like, after giving Jesus to your kids or or sharing Jesus with your kids, the best gift you can give them is a healthy marriage. It's Mm -hmm. like putting rebar in the foundation. If your kids know mom and dad love each other, they're not going to leave each other. There's Mm -hmm. a security in the home, and a lot of you didn't grow up with that, but you have a chance to do do it different and make that kind of commitment to your wife. Mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. death do you part. And so in that security, um, uh, just as a husband is to nourish his wife, it says parents are to nourish their children. Fathers are to bring them up in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, in every way, nourish them. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline uh, just means teaching and it includes education. The word instruction is a different Greek word translated instruction in English. It has to do not so much with um, facts, but with right attitudes and principles, like you read in the book of Proverbs, wisdom for living life. The discipline and instruction of the Lord, that's huge. It's your entire life, your entire home is a theocentric home. It's centered on God. And you then and your family become a missional tool to share Christ with the world. And you bring people into your family. There's, there's no more powerful missional tool on planet Earth, I don't believe, than a family who's centered on Jesus. People are longing for that kind of relational connection with the God who made them and to see what a marriage looks like and kids who love their parents and parents who love their kids. And when, when you see God do that in your home and you bring others into it, It's a powerful, powerful thing. So bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, 
You want in your home to be a place where you're trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord, speaking in a way that's pleasing in the Lord, treating one another in a way that's pleasing in the Lord. That's where you learn all this stuff that then you, you live out in the body of Christ and out in the world where God has called you. Now, before we wrap up, we ended right here in the last gathering because we're out of time, but Ryan said, please do this last thing called the box. And so we're going to do it, and if you don't like it or fall asleep, you can leave, and I'll still love you. But we're going to share this one tool that we have found is helping parents all over the place. Those of you who are not married, I'd like you to think of this tool a little differently. It hit me when I was thinking about this. Not only is this a great tool for raising kids, it's actually a great tool for your walk with God. So think of your own life as my wife who thought this up is going to walk you through this. But think of your own life having this kind of balance in it. Okay. Babe, okay. it's all yours. Take so it the, the box. box for parents. I just can only apply it to parents right now, but that, I think what that's Phil's right. saying is I'm, really you, good. You apply it to okay. parents. Okay. The box is really the frame that we parents build purposely around our children's lives in order to offer them this place of joy-filled security, a place where they can thrive, who can begin to understand who they are and, and to grow in who, into who God designed them to be. And when your children are really small, when your infant comes, um, you've got a little tiny baby over here and somebody expecting over here, right at the very beginning, this box starts off really, really small, really tight. Pretty much mom and dad control everything. You, you control their world. It's an amazing thing when you have your first baby and you realize this baby will die without me. I remember when we drove home from the hospital, we, I don't think Phil's ever draw, driven so slow <laughs> yeah. as that day. Um, so when, it's, when they're little, it's, it starts off really small, really tight, and then slowly over the course of their childhood into when you launch them, the, the box begins to expand and get bigger and bigger as the child matures. Sometimes that box then has to be tightened back up again when he goes through those inevitable times of testing. He's testing you. He's losing control over his own uh, responses. And so the, tight has to, the box has to be tightened. The box grows and grows and grows until one day, the place where we are with our kids now, there is no box. The bottom of this box, as we call it, must be strong and solid, a foundation that your son or daughter can build the rest of their lives on, and that foundation is Jesus. Not church, not the Christian way of living, not Awanus, not any sort of program, just Jesus. As Paul put it, that I may know him to experience the love of Christ, to honestly have met and experienced and felt to know the love of Christ and his love for you. From the moment they are born, we talk about him. We rock them to sleep with songs about him. Our kids still fall asleep if anybody sings the song Amazing Grace. That's just it for our kids. Oh, that's how we put most, our kids to sleep most, most days. And it wasn't a song that I actually it was made famous like in, in my era in the 1960s and 70s by Joan Baez. I didn't even know it was a hymn for a long time. Um, we tell stories about his strength to our young children. We fill in their imaginations with stories of his power and of his magnificence. To my grandsons, who are now nine and six and five, he is the ultimate superhero. I mean, Spider-Man has nothing on God. God is amazing to them. Later, we delve deeper into the, into the word of God with them with the idea of unveiling Jesus, God, who he is to our children. Who he is, how he thinks, what he feels, what he loves. Not academics so much as him, as Jesus himself. We want our children to want him, and so we paint a compelling picture to them of who he is. One side of the box that often has to be tightened up just a little tighter is discipline. There are times in your child's life, in every child's life, some children's lives more than others, when that tide has to be tightened. You know it, you both know it, and so you tighten up, you look for opportunities to address the the problems to address the patterns that you see in their lives. 
there will be times when you just do not know what to do. Am I supposed to discipline this? What am I supposed to do about this behavior? You don't even know if what it is that needs to be disciplined. And so what we made up, what we called for ourselves a guide, the 10-year rule. And actually, I think it was the mentor who told me about John Mark being in control all the time who, who passed this on to us. Basically, that is you say, what will this behavior look like in 10 years? You ask yourself that question. Is your child slamming the door in anger and fury now? Will he squeal off behind the wheel of a 5,000 or 3,000-pound vehicle when he's 17? If your toddler is kicking you or running away from you, what will he do 10 years from now? What's that going to look like? What will his temper tantrum look like when he's 18 or when he's 38? Who will be the victim of all that uncontrolled anger? Your children, just listen to this. This is not what you're going to hear from other people or from, from sources that don't understand the word of God. Your children will not grow out of anything except their clothes. <laughs> and they will grow out of their clothes. Your children will not grow out of anything except their clothes. Instead, it will take some underground, um, well, we have in the Northwest, blackberry bushes everywhere. When we first got up there, I thought that was so amazing. Blackberries can grow in your very backyard. You can go out and just eat wild blackberries. So when we first moved up there and planted this nice garden, I would see the little blackberry coming up and, and just snip it, just snip it right at it. You, you really can't pull them up, so we just snip it. Well, little did I know that that just encourages them to grow like crazy. And so until one spring, a chute on one side of the yard had gone all the way underneath the driveway and now was this big healthy bush on the other side of the yard. In, in the northwest, in the outskirts of Portland, you'll see whole outbuildings just encompassed by blackberry bushes and they just, they crumble it. That's really how strong they are. That how is it is with your children's misbehavior in these early years especially. It, it will grow up and find other ways to spread in other areas of their lives. Unless you get to the root of it, it will just keep popping up at other times of his life and it will get harder and harder for you or for him or her to root it out. If you love your child, you will discipline him, is what the Bible says. The other side, so we have, we have Jesus, we have discipline. The other side, just really briefly, is order. What I call the discipline of order. Now, Phil did tell on me that I love order. I like my house to be very orderly. I throw stuff away all the time. And so Phil's sure that one of these days he's going to go out with the away. next thing to good will. <laughs> But the discipline of order will follow your child from infancy all the way into adulthood, with some more than others. It is simply the concept taught throughout Scripture that there is a time for everything. There's an appropriate time for, for all the different things in our lives. If we fail to put up the side of order and impose order on our children's lives, they will live in a constant state of chaos and disorder. And they'll be stressed out, and you'll wonder what's wrong with them. And this simple side of putting some order and structure into their lives, like God does with us, is what we do as parents. And then the last, the top of the box, is the best. The top of the box is fun, affection, affirmation. Our kids need to know that we love them and that we think the world of them and that we are so glad that they are ours, whether they are three or 13. And it breaks my heart that so many of you didn't grow up knowing that you are loved in this way. But this is how God loves us. This is how he values us. And he brings fun and affection and love and encouragement into our lives. Your child will become who you tell them that you see them becoming. Mm -hmm. Do you hear that? Your child will become, is becoming, who you tell them that you see them becoming. One of my secret hopes when I was raising my kids was that by the time we were done raising them and that they left home, that they would still like me. <laughs> That was just, God, please, will they not just hate me by the time they know me so well? That is basically, though, the box. 
But here's the key that we have found to be true. When you need to tighten the box, your child, he's acting up, he's getting in trouble, he's fighting with his brother, you don't just stop him with discipline. Stop it right now. You need to behave yourself. That probably is exactly what it sounded like coming from me, by the way. Instead, you tighten every side of the box. Jesus, you bring him into the situation, not as some weapon by your side, but as a redeemer, as a rescuer. And of course, discipline, you don't give up, you keep at it, you're looking at it, this is a 20-year job here that you're doing. And order, sometimes you have to reorder your child's world, sometimes I have to reorder my world so that I can succeed at what God is asking of me. And then you bring that child close with fun and loads of affection, and you shower him with affirmation and loads and loads and loads. I mean, you just cannot give enough of this to your kids. If you will, tighten all four of those sides of the box at the same time, not just disciplining, but doing all at the same time, your child will thrive. You will see your child just light up with the joy of living in these kind of safe parameters. There you have it, the box, ladies and gentlemen. But think about your own walk with God. If, you're, if Jesus yeah. is truly Lord and King of your life, yeah. he is the foundation you live your life by, how you make all your decisions. Yeah. If he is the rock, if he is the one you're following, and then you let the Lord discipline you and you respond to the training that God's giving and you order your life so you're spending time with him and you enjoy your walk with God. I mean, the people, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my, my disciples, by your love for each other. They mm-hmm. see the family, this happy, joyful, purpose-filled family. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the way to live your walk with God as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Diane mentioned raising kids. It's, it's, it's a 20-plus year project, and so you need to take the long view. Your kids are going to stumble along the way. It's uh-huh. okay. This isn't, this isn't a short little 10K. This is a marathon. And remember, what we're talking to you about today as we wrap up, you're not trying to raise perfect children. There mm-hmm. aren't any. There are no perfect parents either, as much as you want to be one. You're trying to raise godly kids who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who will grow up one day to follow him. You want to raise a passionate Jesus follower so one day you can say, just like the Apostle John, I have no greater joy than this. My children are walking in the truth. You know, Ryan and Jenny were talking to us last night, and and they they go, you know, you seem like you love, you know, you're so happy, or you love people so much. I go, our cup runneth over. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, could, I, I hope I live longer, but if I died today, the fact that my kids are walking with the Lord, yeah. there's no greater joy. Yeah. And that should be your prayer, and that should be your task that you work towards. I'll close with a short story. You know, we raised our kids, and we were living in southern Oregon when one of our daughters was gonna, going to be a, in a, her senior year of high school. And the Lord was calling us to move to Portland, Oregon to plant a church. And our daughter was thriving. We were in an amazing church like this one where Jesus was being worshipped and she was doing good. She was getting up in the morning reading her Bible. She was doing good in school. She had good friends. She was thriving in every way. And people will say, never move during high school. Don't, if you get a job promotion, don't take it. Don't do that to your kids. And I would say, I agree. It's not a good time to yank your kids up and move with one exception if Jesus is moving you. And so Jesus was moving our family. So she came up from one day, and we sat her down, and we had to tell her. And so she's not quite 17 here. And I told her, you know, sweetheart, this is the deal. We're going to move, and this is why. And, and uh, she started to cry, uh, just this kind of soft crying. And she said, Daddy, can you give me a minute? I said, sure. She went off in her room for 10 minutes or so. And she came back out, and I'll never forget this moment in my life because here's my daughter. I have two daughters, and this, I love them both. And she comes out and she goes, we're supposed to go. <laughs> and she, tears. she goes, Daddy, would you sing a worship song for me? I go, sure. So I grabbed my guitar. We sat down on this bed. And I started singing one of the songs we sang at church. And she starts singing with me this beautiful harmony part. And I stopped. I go, where did you learn to sing like that? She goes, I don't know. You know and so, uh, and so I, I sang another one. And she's harmonizing with me. And, I, and she was good. So I said, hey. Sweetheart, I said, when we start this church, we can't afford a worship pastor, so I'm going to be leading worship and then put my guitar down and teach, you know, like Ryan does here. And um, uh, so I need you to sing with me on the worship team. She goes, I can't do that. I go, yeah, you can. I just heard you. So we move up. We start this church. She, she follows the Lord. 
It wasn't like some kids would say, I can't believe you're doing this to me, ripping me away from all my friends. And that was not it. She had her own walk with God. And she was able to process before the Lord that this was God's call on our family. and It was God's call on her too. She moved up and for the first couple of years, she sang with me on worship team. She met her husband there, Brooke. Now they have two kids, two, my grandkids that I brag about everywhere. Anyway, I wanted to share that story with you. I pray that all of you who one day have kids, if they grow up, you have something similar happen. And you say, you know what? It was worth all the hard work to see my little girl or my little boy actually walk with God. And now she's teaching her kids how to walk with God. And now we're seeing that third generation. There's no greater joy than this. Amen? Amen. All right. It's been plenty long enough. I'm just going to pray a short prayer over you. And we went long because Ryan told us to. So if you're starving, blame it on him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you are doing at this church filled with so many young people called the missing generation in many churches in America. And I thank you, even though many of them are not here today, for all the college-age people you brought to this church to be brought up to become uh, one day married and one day have children. And thank you for all the others with young children here. And I just pray, Lord, that this church already is a lighthouse in the middle of Silicon Valley. And would this light shine stronger and stronger? And Lord, where marriages are under attack and the home is under attack, I just pray for every parent and parent-to-be that are part of this Mm -hmm. church. May these homes be like lighthouses, Lord, where what it looks like to be a family, to walk with God, and that may the love of Jesus flow through these parents and through these kids to the Silicon Valley and the world beyond. And I just pray your blessing and wisdom and grace and steadfastness for all the task that is ahead. And may all of us this week walk with you. May we be, Lord, what we want to teach our kids to be, passionate Jesus followers. In his name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen.